They were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he's related to us. And they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal-bareth. And Abimelech used it to hire reckless scoundrels who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Ophrah and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. When Jotham was told about this, he climbed up on the top of Mount Jerusalem and shouted to them, Listen to me, citizens of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. One day the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. They said to the olive tree, be our king. But the olive tree answered, should I give up my oil by which both gods and humans are honored to hold sway over the trees? Next the trees said to the fig tree, come and be our king. But the fig tree replied, should I give up my fruit, be so so good and sweet to hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, come and be our king. But the vine answered, should I give up my wine, which cheers both gods and humans, to hold sway over the trees? Finally, all the trees went, said to the thorn bush, come and be our king. The thorn bush said to the trees, If you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let fire come out from the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. So now let's move to verse 32 where we'll pick up the story. Now in between this this parable of Jotham now the starts off kind of well for Shechem and Abimelech, but now God is starting to work in the hearts, and now we get conflict. So the next day, the people of Shechem went out to the fields, and this was reported to Abimelech. They went out because they were not following him. So he took his men, divided them into three companies, and set an ambush in the fields. When he saw the people coming out of the city, he rose to attack them. And Abimelech and the companies with him rushed forward to a position at the entrance of the city gate. Then two companies attacked those in the fields and struck them down. All that day, Abimelech pressed his attack against the city until he had captured it and killed its people. Then he destroyed the city and scattered salt over it. On hearing this, the citizens in the tower of Shechem went into the stronghold of the temple of el And when Abimelech heard that they had assembled there, he and all his men went up to Mount, Mount, Mount Zalman. And he took an axe and cut off some branches, which he lifted to his shoulders. He ordered the men with him, Quick, do what you have seen me do. So all the men cut branches and followed Abimelech. They piled them against the stronghold and set it on fire with the people still inside. 
So all the people in the tower of Shechem, about a thousand men and women also died. Next, Abimelech went to Tzabez and besieged it and captured it. Inside the city, however, was a strong tower to which all the men and women, all the people of the city had fled. They had locked themselves in and climbed up on the tower roof. Abimelech went to the tower and attacked it. But as he approached the entrance to the tower to set it on fire, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. Hurriedly, he called to his armor barrier, Draw your sword and kill me so they can't say a, a woman killed him. So his servant ran him through and he died. And when the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. Thus, God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his seven, 70 brothers. God also made the people of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jerubbaal, came on them. The word of the Lord. Father, we're here to worship you, to praise you, to honor you. We're here to we're here to listen to your word, to be shaped by our worship be formed more and more into the people you've called us to be. So Lord, may this be a time where your spirit shapes us and forms us. And Lord, as we enter into reflection on your word, Lord, I pray that these will be your words and not mine. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So we're back into the book of Judges. And we've entered the second half of the book of Judges. The story of Gideon that we looked at for two weeks before Advent and Christmas is the turning point. It's that hinge within the book of Judges. What you had before were, were, were judges who, who truly follow God to the best of their ability, who, who look to God for their strength. But now in the second half of Judges, we see more and more how Israel begins to embrace their identity from the nations around them rather than from their God. This account of Bimelech, it's an ugly story. It's a story of power, of greed, of revenge. It's a brutal story of bloodlust. Gideon dies after 40 years of being a judge. Israel had offered him the throne as king, But Gideon had said, no way. The Lord is our king. That's who we look to. That's who we follow. That's who we obey. 
But we also see how Gideon is influenced by his times and by the nations around him because the people offer him a whole bunch of gold out of gratitude for what he had done in leading them and saving them through God from their enemies. But Gideon uses that gold and he makes an ephod, a, a garment. And we hear about an ephod first in, uh, in, in the wilderness when they're building the temple and God gave them all the designs for, for the temple and then for the garments for the priests. And one of them is an ephod. And, and Gideon uses the gold and creates an ephod. But the problem is he and his family and Israel turn it into an object of worship. Just like the nations around them turn all kinds of things into objects of worship. So you see Gideon continuing this practice that Israel was falling into of worshiping God, but then creating other idols alongside God. And before we get too far into the story and say, how could they do that? That temptation is still with us today. And most of us will fall into that trap ourselves at different times in our lives. Raising something good that God gives us and making it way too important. Making a small God that shapes our lives. Now Gideon has 70 sons through his wives. But he also has a, a concubine who's a slave. And he has one son through that woman as well. And that woman is from Shechem. So now after Gideon's death, what do you think Israel does? You know the rhythm. We've been going through this. They turn to the nations around them and say, hey, you got some pretty cool gods there. Hey, let's kind of bring them into our country as well. We'll kind of set them up alongside our God because, you know, our God gives us a whole lot of rules and he tells us how to live and everything else, but, but your gods offer us all the really cool stuff, all the stuff we really want in our hearts. They begin worshiping. Did you notice that in the story we just read this morning, twice there's references to two other temples of other gods? So Israel is getting filled with all these other temples to other gods. Now Abimelech, there's a vacuum of power. His son threw the concubine, a disgraced son, well, he goes to leaders of Shechem and he says, I know you don't really like me. I know you look down on me because, yeah, I'm just the son of a slave girl and Abimelech. I'm, I'm at least from here. Gideon, he's not from here. Now, he's got 70 sons. So you know what they're going to do? They're going to want to become your rulers. But I'm one of you. Wouldn't you rather have one person over you instead of 70? And they're not even really from us. They're outsiders. Oh, 
Citizens of Shechem go, hey, yeah, that's a really good idea. Who wants 70? We only have one. That's way better. And they say, sure. And they even give him silver so that he can hire a bunch of reckless scoundrels is how this version, I know your version has a little bit different. But he hires men and they go to his father's house. There's a big stone in the yard. And they gather together, 69 of Abimelech's half-brothers, and they kill him on that stone. Talking to Jewish rabbi, they said they sacrificed the 69 sons to the other gods on that stone. Only the youngest son, Jotham, is able to escape. So you see that not only is idol worship getting into Israel, but some of the most worse, the most horrible, the most horrific and odious type of idol worship is now entering into Israel. And already as I was reflecting on this story, I'm thinking, why is this story even in here? This is a hard story. Now Jotham, when he finds out that Abimelech has been crowned king, comes out of hiding and challenges the people with the parable that we read. You know, the trees in the forest saying, hey, we want a king. That's what Israel's kind of want. We want to be just like everybody else. So they go to the, to the, to the powerful trees. They go to, to the trees that, that create lots of value and, and, and that are precious. And, and they all say, really? You want me to give up what I have to just be a king? So finally, the only ones left is a thorn bush. When was the last time you thought of a thorn bush as having kingly qualities? I can just hear the people listening to Jotham going, where are you going with this? This is a really dumb story. But the thornbush says, hey, come under my sheep. I'll protect you. But if you don't, I'll burn you. Just the people are going... I don't get this. What's going on? Reverend Dave Warnock writes, verses 7 to 15 are a parable told by Jotham to highlight the worthlessness of King Abimelech. Each tree that is asked refuses to become king because what they produce is too valuable to be abandoned for kings. Have you ever thought that power and ruling is actually worthless. After the olive fig and vine have all refused the kingship, they go to the thorn bush. The thorn bush offers shade, just as a king ought 
to offer protection to his subjects, but then concludes with the threat of destruction by fire. And I wonder if Isaiah, later on, when he writes in chapter 9, for wickedness burned like a fire, consuming briars and thorns. It kindled the thickets of the forest, and they swirl upwards in a column of smoke. The fire is rooted in the thickets and the thorn bushes and destroys the forest. I wonder if Isaiah is reflecting back in this parable. Jotham curses him. He says, if you haven't treated my family honorably and fairly, if you haven't treated my family in good faith, well, may fire come out from Abimelech and consume you and let the fire come out of you and consume Abimelech. And then he runs. You don't tell a story like that and hang around. He knows there's no place left for him among the people. His father has fought and risked his life for it. And Bimelech rules like a Middle Eastern tyrant. He uses power and force to make the people obey him. Life is all about satisfying the king's smallest inclinations and wishes. He wants the people to treat him like a demigod. Because that's what the other kings retreated like in that area. He creates a ton of hatred between him and the people of Shechem. Hatred stirred up by God because of Abimelech's murderous spree to gain the throne and Shechem's part in helping him. God is avenging the crime against Gideon's sons. Both Abimelech and the people of Shechem are going to suffer the consequences of their horrendous actions. The people of Shechem begin fighting back against Abimelech and Abimelech responds by taking his men, those reckless scoundrels, and goes to war against Shechem, destroying the city, sowing salt in the ground as as an additional insult, saying, you are never going to be fruitful again. Nothing is going to come out of you. You are going to be barren and fruitless forever. Some of the citizens, a thousand of them, they take refuge in the temple of Erebereth. And he murders them by burning them out. A thousand of them. Another picture of another sacrifice. Very much a foreign idol kind of sacrifice. More brutality from a brutal king. How can these be God's people? Jotham's curse against the people of Shechem has come true. How about his curse against Abimelech? How is that going to play out? Now, he's not satisfied with destroying the people of Shechem. He now moves against the city of Thebes, besieges it, and captures it. And inside there's a, the city, there's a strong tower, and people take refuge in there. And Abimelech, 
He has no respect for life. He doesn't care. All he wants is power. He wants to scare the other cities around so bad that they'll fall to his power as well. And he says, hey, it works so good burning these other people, offering them up in the temple. Uh, let's do the same thing here. He approaches the tower to set it on fire. As Abimelech approaches the tower, a woman drops an upper millstone on his head and cracks his skull. Abimelech's worried about his reputation. The guy's dying, and he's worried about his reputation. I don't want anybody to say a woman killed me. So he goes to his servant and says, kill me with my own sword, and he does. You hear echoes back to General Sisera, the foreign general, who is murdered by a woman, J.L., using a tent peg. Just a little bit of irony that, you know, common everyday things are used by women, used by God, to destroy these evil leaders. So Abimelech's dead. Jotham's curse is fulfilled. And Israel learns that you don't mess around with God. God's judgment comes unseen through different people's actions. But God is at the root of Abimelech and Shechem's destruction. Doesn't come right away. You see, God allows evil to flourish so that it consumes itself. allows the evil to fester long enough that it becomes so bad that the only outcome are these horrendous acts of vengeance, greed, and pride. As I read through and reflected on this story, honestly, I couldn't see anything positive in that bloody story of betrayal and vengeance. I even asked myself, God, why do you put this story in the Bible? This is where I have to go to people that are way smarter than me and who understand, who understand some of these stories better than I, I do. I turn to a couple of scholars I respect and to a Jewish rabbi. He gave me some insight into where to find some hope in the story of Bimelech. See, we see God's wrath towards evil and the destruction of Shechem and the death of Abimelech. We see that evil is not going to hold the day. But it's afterwards when we see God's grace at work. And the writer of Judges tells us about the two judges that come after Abimelech, Tola and Jar. We learn very little about them except for how long they led Israel. Tola led Israel 23 years and Jar followed after Tola and led Israel 22 years. After three years of horrific rule by Abimelech, after the chaotic and vicious time of Abimelech, God gives Israel 45 years of order and peace under these two judges. 
a time when Israel returns to following the Lord again. Abimelech brings evil and chaos into Israel. And the people of Shechem help them. Those who are filled with broken pride and ambition, they bring brokenness and chaos into other people's lives. Still the same today. Abimelech, he's an outsider, even in his own family. And he's filled with bitterness, he's filled with anger, and combined with pride and arrogance and ambition, he acts quickly in that leadership vacuum. But he's a broken king who creates an evil environment that brings horror and brokenness. It's hard for the people during Abimelech's rule. But it can be hard for so many people still today. Chaos can so often and quickly come into our lives because of the effects of sin. Because of the effects of someone else's sin. The brokenness it brings is always hard. It's during those times we desperately look for for healing, for hope, for peace. All often just trying to get through the through life one day at a time as best as we can. Having walked with victims of abuse in Montreal with refugees from countries like Somalia and the Congo, having walked with others hurt deeply because of hatred and anger within their families or their community, I learned that sometimes all they hope for is to just make it through the day safely. Talked with one pastor from the Congo. He had horrible stories to tell about persecution there from the warlords. I learned just how evil people can be through his stories. He told me their prayer was for the king to come and for the king to rule. The king of kings, the prince of peace. For them, Jesus is that king. That he comes as a good king. That's what we're reminded of in this time of epiphany. See, the Magi, they were studying the heavens, but they were looking for a special king to be revealed by the heavens. And as we reflected on, we we saw that the Magi had been influenced, impacted, shaped by by people like Daniel and and his three friends who were wise men in the East, by people like Mordecai and Esther who depended deeply on God. And the stories they had of a king, of a Messiah coming to bring peace and hope into the world. 
Pastor Jose said, that's the king we keep looking for and asking to come back home soon. Jesus comes as a king of kings, a prince of peace, the Messiah who's come to save his people. Jesus comes to a world of chaos and darkness. He comes to people shaped and hurt by sin. He comes to a world where evil exists, even within our own community, even though we don't want to look too hard to find it. Jesus comes to bring order out of chaos, to bring light into darkness to offer us the grace and the healing our hearts are yearning for, to offer a community of hope and acceptance to those who are just seeking a place where they can be, where they can be loved, where they can be built up, where they can be restored. This echoes all the way back to Genesis 1. Genesis 1 starts off with, it was formless and void. The Hebrew says it was chaotic. What you see in chapter 1 of Genesis, the very beginning of creation, is out of that chaos. Through Jesus, as we hear in John 1, order and beauty and wonder It's created out of chaos through Jesus, through God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's sin that brought chaos back into the world. That's why Jesus' message is simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's his kingdom. A kingdom of shalom. A kingdom where creation flourishes and reconciliation between God and humanity is renewed. But then we're also called by Paul people of reconciliation. We're called to to bring that reconciliation between God and humanity through Jesus into the world. That's a huge message that we often don't appreciate enough. But that reconciliation is also to bring people together. To bring healing and hope. Unfortunately, in this lifetime, until Jesus returns, it's not always going to happen. But that's still what we are called to do and be. People of reconciliation. Jesus summarizes the law as love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The second's like it, love your neighbor as yourself. But it's followed up by one more law. That because we love God and our neighbor, we go and we make disciples of all nations. That we baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we teach them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. Because we trust that the path, the way Jesus lays out for us, the path of following him 
being shaped and formed by him, of, of allowing his spirit into our hearts and souls and minds to shape us, is the path that the world desperately needs. And Jesus ends with these last words, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. You don't do it alone. We don't do this alone. Our king is with us. He never abandons us. He brings salvation, but he brings order out of the chaos that is in many, many of our lives and hearts and souls. Chaos created by sin. Jesus invites us to come to him to experience his peace. He says, as you experience my peace, Go forward as my people and bring reconciliation, peace and hope to the world in my name. Inviting them to walk with you, to follow me. Amen. Father, thank you. You give us these stories because they reflect real life. There are still rulers like Abimelech in the world today. There is still evil. There is still brokenness. There is still chaos. There is so much hurt in our world. And Lord, we're, we're blessed in that we don't see a whole lot of it. The problem is that evil also It operates out of darkness and shadows so that unless we unless we really enter into our community into those dark and hard places we may never see it but you call us to go so Lord help us to be faithful help us to follow you into those hard places to walk alongside people whose only hope is you. And let us bring you the light of the world into all the darkness around us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.